You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. If you um, didn't get a psalm, one of the, the psalm cards, they are, they are available right there on the back table. Jordan uh, has shifted from the trap to the, from the drums to the back, and he can uh, get you squared away. So if you didn't get one, grab one of those. You also have access to a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Um, I am excited about the Psalms. It's one of my favorite uh, books uh, in the Bible, and uh, as is kind of the way it falls typically, I usually lead out on uh, this series, and so um, I will just give you a little bit of background specific to this particular book. The word psalm, or the title of this collection, uh, is from the Greek. It just means songs of praise or prayer. And so while many of them are personal, like the psalm that we're going to look at today, um, they were originally designed to uh, be used in the liturgy of corporate worship. Essentially, these were hymns that God's people uh, would sing and pray together. The book of Psalms, five compilations um, are unique. Um, their genre in, um, is, uh, is poet, poetic. They tend to uh, reflect descriptions and experiences of real life, while there are also theological implications that we will discover. And while writing, um, the writings of the Psalms uh, are uh, very wide in their expression, for, of, of kind of human existence. There are praises incorporated um, in this book. There are prayers of lament. There are cries for mercy and deliverance. And there are even angry calls for justice and revenge. So if you're uh, really angry at somebody and you're like, I know I'm not supposed to hate, right, or wish really bad things, there's a psalm in there for you that will describe something horrible that the psalmist was hoping would happen to somebody. And what, what's wonderful about that is that I, that I can express that through his word and then it's like a release, release valve. But they are emotionally raw and human. We read, we read and meditate on these sections differently. Um, they, they tend to pull us more by the heart than by um, the mind and uh, have a way of kind of getting below the surface in ways that narratives and maybe even teaching portions of scripture uh, don't normally. The Psalms stand out in particular because of how important they uh, were and always have been to the people of God. In fact, they are an overwhelming 400 direct or indirect allusions and references to the Psalms, in particular within the Old Testament, 79 direct quotations. Um, this is the prayer book that Jesus would have used and though written by David and Asaph and Solomon and even Moses has one in there, um, over a span of a thousand years, they're ultimately about Jesus. And we know Jesus to be the revealed word of God made flesh. We just sang that. And so remarkably, these are Jesus' own words about himself. And we know this, um, and not, not the least of which is from Luke chapter 24. After his ascension, he meets with his disciples. And he says, remember when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, first part of this broader Bible, and the prophets, the middle part of the Old Testament, and the last part, and then there's these writings, and in the Psalms, 
were to be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So that's my hope for us this morning. That our minds will be open and there'll be something here that God can use um, in our hearts as we are uh, open and receptive to him. And I encourage you not to neglect um, this book. It points you, the Psalms in general, they point you to Jesus. I commend you to use it as a guide for your daily morning and evening prayer times. Um, They reflect our emotions in ways that um, we may not even know that we're feeling, and certainly sometimes in ways that we dare not express on our own, as I mentioned earlier. They help us find words to express sorrow, needs, and even gratitude. They're written for us, for God's people, and they can be trusted to help us discover how glorious Jesus really is. So don't let your mind talk yourself out of seeing him in these pages. And so let's pray, and then we'll, I'll offer a few reflections on Psalm 13 in particular. Almighty God and Father, we thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We're grateful beyond words for the recent events promoting the sanctity of life in our nation, but we grieve our own sins and the sins of our land. We know that you are bountiful in your forgiveness, and so we beg this of you, knowing that it is only through repentance and faithfulness that we will ever come to a place of true healing and abundant life. And so we pray with the psalmist this morning, O Lord, how long will you forget us? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must we live with this stomach full of pain, with sorrow in our hearts every day? How long will the enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer us, O Lord our God. Restore the sparkle to our eyes lest we die. Don't let the enemy of our souls gloat, saying, they've been defeated. Don't let there be joy at the expense of our downfall. We trust in your unfailing love. We rejoice because you have rescued us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will sing to you, O Lord, because through it all, you have been very good to us. Amen. Our psalm this morning is attributed to King David. It's considered to be a psalm of lament and is deeply personal, but it's also expressive of the needs of God's people as a whole. And it's interesting because it comes in waves. It's beautifully balanced. It begins with a fourfold sigh, which we'll look at in just a moment. This four times he repeats how long. Then it's followed by a three-part prayer, and then ends with two songs of thanksgiving and hope in the midst of the difficult circumstances that he's facing. It's like, they're like waves crashing at the beginning, then gently undulating through prayer and end with this placid ripple of praise. It's actually a soothing and wonderful text as we make our way through it. Let's start with verses one and two, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul to struggle with this gripping anxiety and have sorrow in my heart, anguish, all the day and every day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long indeed? This repeated phrase emphasizes the depth of his emotion in this moment. What does it express Maybe you know and they know how things should be, what should have happened, but sometimes not so much. 
frustration building and settling in, frustration with yourself, with others, with the circumstances of life, and maybe even with God himself, which is how he starts. Verse one, will you forget me forever? Why are you hiding your face from me? A real sense of being alone. It doesn't seem to be about sin. You'll find Psalms where he's crying out this way and then it's followed by a confession um, and, a, and, a, and an ask, a plea for forgiveness, but he doesn't do that here. He just, he just is moaning because God seems so quiet and so distant in the midst of very troubling circumstances. A real sense of distance. How long? And in this place of anguish, feeling deeply disturbed, being unable to make himself feel better, he's looking around, and what do you know? God's absent. But there sure is an acute awareness of the enemy. What is this enemy? Maybe it's shame from the struggle with that besetting sin or the memory of that profound hurt, or the very real season of depression, anxiety, or hopelessness, or the activity of the accuser, an adversary of our souls, or those actual persons who are contributing to the situation. Yeah, these are all very present. But God seems like he's nowhere to be found. We feel forgotten, we feel abandoned, we're torn up inside, and we have been for a while. We feel victimized and helpless. And we ask, where's the justice? Where's the relief? People who should know better are making it worse. And frankly, I can't even seem to get it right myself half the time. So we get impatient. We look for an outlet. We long for comfort. But there always seems to be more pain at the end of the prescription. Seriously, how long is this going to take? Have you ever been there? In at least one way, this statement, how long, can be understood. It's a unit of measure marked by hard time. There is a how long it seems like lightning. It goes by fast, something you look forward to and enjoy so very much. If anything, though, it's a how long until we get to do this again. We never groan how long during the good times. That comes during the time between, after the end and the goodbyes. How long is expressed during the grind and that season that is being endured. We actually heard this phrase expressed twice in last week's passage in Mark 9. Jesus asked, how long would he have to put up with folks who didn't seem to get it. And then he asked the father, the dad of this young man, how long had your, has your son suffered? So if Jesus had how long moments, then they're not sinful. And that's encouraging to us. Maybe they're just conditions of our humanity. And maybe how we process them is the trick. What if God has our sanctification in mind. And I think we get a hint of this in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient 
toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all should reach this place where I turn to Jesus to find what I'm looking for. What if the difficulty and even the sense of abandonment is a gift of grace that is serving to draw us back to him? As we labor in the how long season, it can feel like you're in a pitch black room fighting your way through thick, dark curtains with your only sense of direction being the occasional shift in the thick, heavy fabric revealing a sliver of light ahead of you on the floor. And for most of my life as a Christian, I barely moved through that room, mostly just standing there. I was scared, alone, angry, and defeated. That's how I lived my life. I was trying to figure out the terms of my faith on my own. I knew about God, but I wasn't seeking him with any intentionality. And when I did move, it was in spurts. I rarely prayed. I most often left God out of my plans. I told myself that this was faith because, after all, God's sovereign, right? As good reformed people, that should be what we think. He's got this. But I was hurting, angry, tense, controlling, addicted, and alone. Fighting and scraping for meaning in relationships, identity in my success, with no victory over sin. And I did terrible damage to my family, to my marriage. I kept scarring my soul. I failed to be an effective witness. I had the answer but didn't know how to live it faithfully. And it felt like the enemy had me on the ropes. Back to the psalm, verse 3 and 4. The psalmist says, I'm in this place. Consider, see me. Look at me. Turn your face back to me. Answer. Respond to me, O Lord, my God. Would you light up my eyes? In other words, would you become light? Would you make what is dark light? Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest I'm ruined. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice that I have fallen. That I am shaken. He cries out, help, <laughs> please, anything. Give me something to live for. It's so dark, and what I dread is getting the upper hand of my soul. So the psalmist ties these how long sighs to what he really needs in the moment. And more than relief, he recognizes his need for God. And so he cries out, God, your face is obscured. Look at me. Show me a sign of your favor. God, I am out of solutions. Give me an answer, a word of hope. God, the light is so dim. Illuminate my soul. Make my eyes sparkle again with your grace. Otherwise, I'll die inside. I can't find what's worth living for anymore. Otherwise, I'll be overwhelmed by the enemy. My hands are slipping. The ground is shifting. My faith is failing. Otherwise, I'll be the laughing stock of my haters. Without your mercy, I feel like the next strike could be fatal. You see, the enemy's purpose is the real danger here. The wound is real, but it's the second cut of the blade 
that sometimes does the most damage. And so at this moment, if Don gets his maps, like he can, he's the map guy, can I be the prop guy? Look at here. I don't even know where this thing came from. Uh, it, it materialized after the fire, so it may have even been behind a uh, drywall or something, right? But this thing, and it's heavy. It's not a, like, it's, it's real. It's not sharp, but it's real. If the enemy comes at us and, this, and he slashes, right? So he comes down and he cuts us. And we get caught off guard. The offense happened. The wrong was suffered. The sin was committed. The wound is real. The pain is legit. The emotion is valid. This cut is real. What put us in this place is real. Fear, shame, hurt, stress, anxiety, these are all triggered physiologically by things like adrenaline and cortisol and one I hadn't heard of before, vasopressin. <laughs> I guess it's a hormone. And here's my thought on this. Try, try controlling your hormone response in a near accident or getting sudden bad news or when you're embarrassed or when you're insulted or offended. How do we respond to that first slash? Do we fight? Do we flee? Do we retreat, hide? What's your defense? Do we retaliate, get resentful, bottle it up, plan revenge, sink into animosity, become apathetic? Because it's the second cut that's the real intent of the enemy. We can't control this one. You know, when, I'm, when we train in, at Krav, we don't use swords and stuff, but we use cali sticks and that kind of thing. And so as we come through, we ne this is never the, this, the last stroke, right? And you swing through and you swing all the way through and then you turn it and you come back for the second, right? The point's the second cut. That's the kill shot. And it makes our how long moment a two-part stress. The backswing is the one that lays us out. So our frustration can be scoffed at and our failure can be mocked. I'm gonna put this away so that I don't stab myself in the foot or it slip out of my hand and take Eric out up here. I don't wanna do that. This was my life, a victim of the second cut. A constant cycle of hurt and retaliation and self-care. And I was impotent, stop it, and utterly alone in the battle. Last week, Pastor Jeremy, as I referenced, talked about the father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus and asked for help because every other option had failed. The religious leaders were incapable. His disciples were stumped. And yet Jesus looked at the man. He listened to his story and his plea for mercy and he blazed with power on behalf of his son. Sounds familiar, right? From verse three, he says, consider me, look at me. Answer me, O Lord, my God, will you light up my eyes? Will you help my unbelief? We'll get back to that um, passage again when, in August when we get back into Mark, but in the part that Jeremy wasn't able to cover 
in the time that he had, and he took a lot of time, still couldn't get to it. So there's a second part of chapter nine that we're gonna get into. And it's this part where the disciples now pull Jesus off to the side and they ask him, um, why weren't we able to do this? And in Matthew's parallel account, Jesus replies, well, this kind does not go out but by prayer and fasting. So when did Jesus have time to stop and pray and fast in this situation? He didn't. He just walked up on the scene. And I think the secret here is the pattern of Jesus' life. He prepared for the moment by being prepared for every moment and being prepared in every moment. The pattern of his earthly life was one of constant and consistent gravitation to time alone with the Father. At every turn, this was his intention. Most, if not all, of his recorded ministry miracles and teaching moments happened while he was going to or coming from times of prayer. The preparation was perpetual. The muscle memory was developed then. So when the enemy prepared to strike and he presented himself, even with the very real distance that Jesus felt from the Father, not just on the cross, but in his condescension, having shared in the divine trinity for all of eternity, he now cloaks himself with humanity and yields to this. He was still ready. What would, we, what would be different? What would look different? What would feel different about our lives when the first cut comes and the rush of hormone-induced emotions flood over us? Our immediate reaction wasn't triggered by instinct, but was a response fueled by the muscle memory of communion with the God who sees and hears and enlightens our eyes. What if he, that could happen every time we cry, here we go again. Why does this keep happening? How long do I have to put up with this? Handling these moments on my own, living a life based entirely on my natural instinct is an emotional roller coaster and is utterly exhausting. And one day I got tired of it because everything I tried failed and everything built in my image had collapsed Nothing could bear the Savior weight I was putting on it. And Psalm 127, the first few verses, spoke to my heart. Because unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord guard the city, the watchmen watch in vain. I get up early and I go to bed late and I eat the bread of anxious toil, but it is the Lord who gives his beloved sleep. I cannot create a strong enough structure I cannot defend or protect myself adequately. There aren't enough hours in the day to indemnify myself from the stresses of life. So how long before I will yield to Christ for my identity and relationships? How long before I'll trust Christ for my security and help? How long before I discover the rest and the peace that Christ offers to those who come to him? The psalmist goes on, because I think he got there in the last two verses here in five and six. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, your saving help. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt generously, bountifully with me. 
He says, I trusted in your unfailing love. I leaned in. I pressed on. I stayed faithful. He's courageous. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, uphold me, O Lord, according to your promise, let, so that I can live. Let not my hope in you be in vain. You feel the dark cloud of despondency rolling in. Pray. You feel the barb of that insult. Pray. You feel the sting of rejection. Pray. You feel the heat of shame flush your cheeks. Pray. You feel the blow to your heart. Pray. We train against the instinctual reactions by developing the muscle memory response of prayer. Example I gave uh, earlier, let's just say Rhonda's my wife, and let's just say, very hypothetically, she says something to me that triggers an emotional reaction. (laughs) Whether she intends to or not, again, it's never happened, but just says something, and I have something well up in me. Right? You see red. I didn't try to do that. It just happened. Cut one. I can't do anything about it. And in that moment, she feels like an enemy to me. So, what's my pattern? Well, I can handle this situation because I'm really good at it. I'll respond with anger, sarcasm, resentment, cold shoulder. I'll make her pay. What's that? Cut two. Or I can choose another path. I can recognize who the real enemy is in that moment. And I can build a lifestyle of habitual, daily prayer. And literally excuse myself in that moment and go to my prayer room. There's been very few things that have been more transformational in the life of my marriage than for us building in, both of us, building in that reflex. Everything in me wants to respond to that. And that becomes my trigger. I need to get away from this for just a second and go talk to the Lord. Because he knows how I'm feeling and what to do with it. It's there that I can deal with cut one and make the second slash not land where I don't have to inflict another wound on my soul or on the other person. And maybe in that moment I can't forgive yourself or them. But Jesus can. So we let him. And we cling to him by letting him forgive for you. Tell him. Maybe you can't seem to heal or get past it. The pain is too deep, too fresh, too chronic. Jesus can heal you. So let him. Cling to him. Let him heal. Be salve for the wounds. Ask him. Maybe the how long has gone on for so long that your faith is weak. Worry and uncertainty now has a vice grip on your soul. Jesus is always faithful. Fall into him. Meditate on his promise to never leave you or forsake you. 
Cry out to him. Maybe you just can't seem to get it right. You feel like a failure. It seems easier to simply give up. Stop trying. Jesus has not given up on you. Throw yourself on his mercy and trust in his saving help. We get low to find him. And sometimes we get low through a force of will or a decision to try to be humble, but most of the time we get low because we're humiliated. We've been cut. And if you find yourself in a pit, up to your waist, in blood, mud, and filth, wondering where Jesus is, look down. And that's where you'll find him. Because he's among the lowly. He's meek and he's gentle. And then we turn to him. We repent and we look up. And we see his eyes blazing with mercy and kindness. Every single time. The psalmist says that he had found joy in the Lord's saving help as if it had already happened. The how long season hadn't gotten better. And something else had changed. Still pushing through those dark folds of black curtains every day, straining to catch a glimpse, a stream of light, the faintest whisper. Yes, sometimes he hides himself. But when I slow down and stop panicking, he begins to enlighten the eyes of my heart. It's not one and done, it never is, but I keep going. And occasionally when we pause long enough to listen, we can hear the faintest rustling of his robes. We can hear the sound of his breath just ahead of me and I realize that I'm not flailing, I'm not groping, I'm not tripping along ahead alone on my how, in my how long life. He has me by the hand and he is guiding me through. For those who aren't Christians yet, the how long anguish is a hopeless state. The idea that life's hard and then you die seems to be the truth of the matter. What's the point? And I would just encourage you to consider the possibility that it's worth the risk to cry out to Christ for saving help. He is always there and aware and responsive to this prayer and he'll respond with boundless grace. He'll give you the light you seek. Christians, we find ourselves in these how long dark places, but we also find ourselves just generally in the place between his ascension and his glorious appearing. And we may be asking ourselves, how long, O Lord? Don't despair. He is always willing to turn his face towards you. He sees you. He hears, and he will once again fill your heart with light. Celebrate what he has done for you. And we'll do this together by remembering his loving kindness, by pressing into his mercy and grace, because that's the real truth of the matter. Washing over my current how long season with the gentle peace of a tangible hope 
discovered only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we share this communion meal together, we are full of gratitude, as he was expressing, that the Lord has dealt bountifully with us, and we rejoice in his perfect work and all-sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. Let's pray. Be present, Lord Jesus Christ, our only refuge and hope, as you were present with your disciples. Enlighten our eyes, flood into our hearts, and be known to us in the breaking of bread. Amen. Christian, this is for you. Communion servers will be on both sides. We've got uh, self-serve stations in the back. There are even prepackaged communion cups with juice and wafer together. But we read in the scriptures on the night that he was betrayed, Christ took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he continued by taking the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Beloved, these are the gifts of God for the people of God and we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. May the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us always even to the end of the age. Amen. You may come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.